So these last uh, weeks of the year, um, we've been talking on Monday nights uh, about the qualities in Buddhist teaching that are known as the Brahma-viharas, which are called the sublime states or the divine states of heart. And basically they're a description in Buddhist psychology of the qualities of the awakened heart that are here in each human being. You might call them your true nature or your Buddha nature. Um, And they're uncovered or they become manifest very easily, actually, whenever um, we get a little bit quiet, whenever we come in touch with ourselves, whenever we step out of the small sense of self, um, which is sometimes called the body of fear, the limited self that feels separate from everything, uh, there comes back immediately or directly a, a sense of the genuine connectedness with all of life. Um, And it's not because it's a philosophy, and it's not because it's some great meditative attainment. Um, um, It's the reality. It's the way that we are. Um, And one of the deep and beautiful purposes of coming, here we come all these people and sit and meditate together, is just to come back to this connectedness or this love, if you want to call it that, and um, live from it. Or to break the bubble or the illusion of separateness, the optical delusion of consciousness is what Einstein called it, where we actually feel like we're separate. And we are sort of, you know. Um, That's also true. That's part of the beauty and the mystery of a wise psychology Buddhist psychology certainly has this, uh, is the um, quality of paradox that you are both connected with everything and you're also separate. And so you have your own social security number um, and yet you also interbreathe with the trees of the Amazon and the blood in your body is part of the rain clouds in the Pacific Ocean as much as anything. Um, And the Pacific Ocean, therefore, also contains all of your social security numbers, but in a kind of (laughs) hidden way. So the invitation in Buddhist practice is, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, remember your true nature. Remember both your Buddha nature and your zip code. Remember your capacity to rest in love, um, because it's what matters in life, um, and because it's true. And these divine abodes or sublime states that are our nature, last week we talked about compassion, another is joy, another is deep peace or equanimity. And this week I want to talk about metta or loving kindness. Another language, if you will, for what it means to Stop and pay attention, bring the quality of mindful, mindfulness, awakening to our experience, is that we encounter that which is mystical. From Einstein, he says, the most beautiful and most profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystical It is the sower of all true science. And to one whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe, they are as good as dead. So for him, aliveness, science, it's a beautiful thing to see. Science meaning discovery of the world. But perhaps more fundamentally, humanity is connected with this sense of of mystery. You all know the saying from the Ojibwe Indians, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And sometimes, especially because we live in troubled times and in a, in a, 
in a troubled world in many ways where there's continuing injustice and continuing warfare, continuing racism, continuing environmental destruction, and so forth. There's even piracy. I mean, there has been piracy, but it's like, pirates? Come on! You know, this is the 21st century. Sorry, we've got 21st century pirates, you know? I mean, so we have that. It's true. Um, But on the other side, reading from one book of many, this is a book of um, coincidences. And, of course, we all know these stories. So... um, in 1969, in the Vietnam War, um, a young uh, 20-year-old Air Force sergeant fell in love with a Thai woman. They lived together, and they gave birth to a baby boy who they named Nung, which means number one son in, in Thai. Nung is a word for one. And at the end of the war, John Garcia, the father, and his partner, Paton, looked at whether they could move to the States together, but her family discouraged her. They really wanted her and the child, and they lived near there, to stay with her. And so he moved back, and he tried to correspond with her. But as time went on, she got connected with another American and ended up marrying him over there. And he returned, he insisted that all her letters be returned unanswered. So over years, um, he lost touch with her, and lost touch with what happened to his son. Then in 1996, John was driving down a highway in Pueblo, Colorado, um, in his Ford, and he looked at the gas gauge, and the tank was halfway full, but for some unexplained reason, he decided to stop at this one total gas station that he'd never used before. Um, And when it came time to pay for the gas, although he usually pays cash, he said... You know, he had money in his pocket. He decided to write a check. So the young man behind the counter looked down and noted the name and looked up at him and said, Are you John Garcia? Yes, said the man. Have you ever been in the Air Force? Yes, replied John, not thinking too much about it. Have you ever lived in Thailand? Yes, said John, stepping back, wondering what this is about. Do you have a son there? With great puzzlement, he said yes. And then with a racing heart, the cashier posed one more question. And what was his name? Nung, says, came the reply. And here were all these commuters on Route 50 in Colorado. And the young man just looked into his eyes and said, I'm so happy to see you, Dad. And this is a book full of those kind of stories. And then people say, oh, well, you know, statistically it has to happen. (laughs) It's not about statistics. I mean, statistics are good, although you probably saw the bumper sticker that said that 80% of statistics are made up. (laughs) It's, It's not about statistics. There's some bigger game that's going on that has to do with our incarnation in this world. And as one Hasidic rabbi said, I never asked for understanding, I asked for wonder. You know, or Walt Whitman who wrote, a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. Just the fact of existence of a, a mouse or a tree or your own body or... or um, I don't know, a Cuisinart, right? (laughs) Or socks. Pablo Neruda has all these wonderful odes to the common objects of the world. One of his best is, you know, in praise of socks. I mean, just the fact of existence is completely bizarre and unexpected and, and fabulous. And so in some way, we get caught in our round of being busy and doing the things we have to do and tending to things, you know, our zip code and our social security number and so forth, and kind of think that that's what the game is about. And, you know, it sort of is, but only sort of. I've read this before, but I like it. In one of history's more unlikely acts of totalitarianism, 
the Chinese government has banned Buddhist monks in Tibet from reincarnating without government permission. <laughs> According to a statement issued by the State Administration for Religious Affairs last year, the law which went into effect last August strictly stipulates the procedures by which one is to reincarnate and is, quote, an important move to institutionalize management of reincarnation. (laughs) It's kind of how we live taken another step further, right? But what is this? Love is like gravity. It's it's, uh, Brian Swim calls it allurement. It's this quality of things being drawn to one another because they're really a part of one another. I mean, we're all together in the Big Bang and we're just sort of bumping around afterward in a more dispersed way. And it's some connectedness that is there in consciousness as well as in the physical world as if they were separate. So to meditate allows us to step out of the small sense of self. We're there and we have our resentments and our desires and all that. And you see all that from the space of awareness and realize, oh yeah, there's all that and here's a breath and here we are on this earth. And what matters underneath all that? We found in teaching Buddhist practices in the last 35 years that I've been a part of this kind of wave of Buddhism coming Um, in a more popular way to the West. We started training with a lot of mindfulness and energy and effort to stay aware of breath and body, of feelings and thoughts. Uh, And it turned out it didn't work so well um, because people are so hard on themselves. And what was effortful perhaps in a Thai or Burmese culture um, turned out here to play into everybody's unworthiness and self-judgment and trying to make themselves better and all the kind of injuries that we carry about not being okay that is so deeply prevalent in our modern society. And so after a few years, we changed the way we taught and began to include gradually more and more and more loving kindness and compassion as the ground of practice because it was the only way people could really pay attention without being judgmental. Otherwise, their, their whole practice of mindfulness was actually full of striving and ambition and, judge, and self-judgment. And it didn't get them anywhere except more striving and ambition and self-judgment, which wasn't really what you were supposed to be practicing. So it was so helpful to do this because it turns out half of spiritual life, if you want to love somebody else, half of spiritual life is really self-acceptance. How's that? At least. Remember the cartoon from Jules Pfeiffer, which shows um, a man standing in the corner, his arms folded, kind of drawn back, and a woman on her knees with her arms outstretched, saying, but I love you. And he's looking back and saying, don't you threaten me. (laughs) It's not so easy, you know, this self-acceptance stuff. And we have our ideals of how we're supposed to be. And then there's our humanity. And part of this mystery that I was talking about is the mystery of our humanity with its, Oscar Wilde's phrase, with its tainted glory, with its beauty and its desire and its fear and its confusion and its amazing capacity to awaken and say, oh, this is beauty and love and longing and desire and fear. This is what we are. Um, and the, the beautiful thing from the Buddhist teachings is that we can ama- awaken in the midst of all this. It's not that you're supposed to be different or change yourself, but the capacity to awaken, to awaken and know what's so, and to bring love alive in it, is what changes the whole game. Not because you'll be different. You, your personality, you're weird. You know, <laughs> You have always been and you will be. Just like your body, it's just the way you're not going to change it. Right, so you get used to it, as Ram Dass talks about becoming the connoisseur of his neurosis. You know, it's just like, that's the way that it is. My dear friend Ed Brown, Zen teacher and uh, wonderful cook, author of the Tassahara cookbook and breadbook and so forth, who teaches here sometimes, 
So he writes this story, which I haven't read for a while, but I love. When I first started cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out right. I'd follow the recipe, try variations, but nothing worked. The biscuits just didn't measure up. Now, growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick, the other from Pillsbury. (laughs) For the Bisquick ones, you added milk to the mix and then blobbed the dough in spoonfuls on the pan. You didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped the can on the corner of the counter and it popped open. Then you twist the can open more, put the pre-made biscuits on a pan and bake them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what our life should look like compared to what? Canned Pillsbury biscuits? Leave it to Beaver? The people who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, but to me they weren't right. Finally, one day came an insight You know, sometimes we call this insight meditation. A shifting into place and awakening, not right compared to what? Oh, my word, I'd been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. (laughs) Then came the exquisite moment of actually tasting my own biscuits without comparing them to some hidden ideal. They were weedy, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real, all these Zen things. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating, the moments when you realize that your life is just as it is and it's fine, thank you. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. But trying to produce a biscuit or a life with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger, was so frustrating. Impossible. And then savoring, actually tasting the present moment, the way things were, how much more complex and multifaceted and alive. As Zen students, we spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew what the Bisquick Zen student looked like. Calm, buoyant, cheerful, energetic, deep, profound. Our motto, as one of my friends said, was, looking good, right? We've all done this, trying to look good as husband or wife or parent, trying to attain perfection, trying to model ourselves after Pillsbury biscuits. Well, to heck with it, I say. Wake up and smell the coffee. How about some good old homemade biscuits? Suzuki Roshi, his teacher, talked about how meditation was like baking that you put yourself in the oven and you sit, you know, and what comes out of you as you sit, you know, your fears and your anxiety and your desires and all that, you just let it come and rise out as it does and gradually you saddle yourself and something beautiful, some good aroma comes. He said you have to bake yourself a lot of times in the oven, but out of it something, something beautiful comes. Um, and our liberation, our inner freedom doesn't come by will, It comes from love. It comes as a kind of grace when we love ourselves and we begin to love this world. The the sense of separateness drops away. So many stories. Let's see which ones to tell tonight. Okay, one more poem. See if we even get to the end of this talk. This is a poem by my favorite local poet, Alison Luderman. Some of you have heard this. Um, again, about the the struggle that we have to really let ourselves open in this way. She writes, Don't tell anyone, but even as a good Jewish girl, I love Jesus. I love his dark, Semitic eyes and how his friends are all the poor and prostitutes and how he will even go to hell for love. He's just like that Buddhist bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, except his name is easier to pronounce. (laughs) It's hard to yell for Avalokiteshvara when you're in big trouble. But oh Jesus comes naturally to the lips. I just don't want to die saying oh shit. I want to die like a llama, lie on my right side, turn my head in the direction of my next birth. 
I know I'd have to meditate a lot to do it this well. And let's face it, there aren't enough years left in my life to get that enlightened. And following Jesus is so much easier. All you have to do is love everyone. Well, seems is the critical word here. Sometimes it seems impossible with the actual people around you. (laughs) But then if you really look, you realize, what else is there to do? What else is there to do? So what's true is that it's not by will, but it's by grace or by letting go or by love. I remember an old woman that I studied with in Switzerland. She was my wife's main teacher, uh, Dora Kalf, who was the first Jungian child analyst and the creator of sand play therapy. And she was a wise woman. She was like an old lama, actually. In fact, she was a Tibetan Buddhist. And all the lamas that came to Europe out of Tibet, Kalu Rinpoche and the Karmapa and the Dalai Lama and so forth, they all stayed in her house. She had a little Tibetan temple in this 15th century Swiss house. And they also all made all these little sand plays. And she never would tell me what they did. I kept asking. But I remember going to work with her. And she had this room appointed with 10,000 figures of trees and cars and animals and, you know, um, angels and, and um, you know, soldiers and anything you could imagine, sort of all the world, and these little sandboxes. And it's like dreaming out loud. And she was the old master. I said, well, so what should I do? I wanted her to kind of give me the instruction. And she smiled at me and she said, anything you like. Which is an amazing thing to have somebody say to you, what should I do? Anything you like. And I just began to take these figures. It was almost like being like a dream. And out of me came things that I was really surprised by. You know, scenes that came out from some deep places if I'd waited for a long time, if not a lifetime, to have somebody say, here is what she called the free and protected space where anything that needs to be known and seen can be displayed. And it was such a beautiful thing to do. I learned so much from her. And it was really like meditating out loud, meditating in the the witness, the presence of another. So one of the people who sits at Spirit Rock, one of my um, dear friends who's sitting here for a long time, is a woman named Lisa Hamburger. And Lisa was the main primatologist at the San Francisco Zoo. For a lot of years, she took care of the chimps and the gorillas and so forth. And I remember asking Lisa if it would be all right if um, my daughter, when she was kind of late elementary, beginning middle school, if she and some of the other kids in her school could come to the zoo. And she said, sure, I'll take you to meet the chimps and the gorillas. So we went and... My daughter went to this little school that had not many kids, so kids from second grade all the way up to seventh grade or something, this whole group of kids came. First we went in and we shook hands with the chimps and she introduced them by name and we had this whole wonderful kind of encounter with with them. And then she said, now it's time to go meet the gorillas. And all the kids were like, the gorillas, right? And she said, well, you have to know how to meet a gorilla. Um... And the main thing that you need to know about meeting a gorilla is respect. So here's how you manifest respect in gorilla language. And it wasn't that we were going into the enclosure, but just up to it. She said, first of all, you don't look with your eyes directly at the gorilla. That's considered impolite. You lower your eyes and you kind of sidle up maybe a little bit to the side, maybe not quite backwards. but So so you're coming with your eyes downcast, sidling up, and then when you want their attention, you clear your throat. <clears throat> That's a gorilla sign that you're wanting to talk or have so. So all these little kids lowered their eyes and kind of sidled up. And meanwhile, the gorillas are in there doing their gorilla thing and the big silverback male and all the others and so forth. And, you know, people are going by with strollers and, you know, ice cream cones and all the things that you see in the zoo going, and the gorillas are paying no attention to anybody. And these kids kind of sidle up like this and go, (coughs) you know, their eyes down. And all of a sudden the gorillas look up like, oh, you wanted something? And they walk over. It was so cool. Anyway... It's not very complicated. There is a quality of respect that's in love, the respect for who and what you actually are just as you are, not trying to make 
you, yourself, or somebody else into something, but actually loving the way things are. And it has such a power to it and such a kind of transformative dimension. Um, Martin Luther King talked about how as we struggle for justice, let us, do not let us become bitter. Let us use only the weapons of love for it is these that will transform ourselves, bring dignity to ourselves and bring dignity to those who are in, we are in opposition to. Um, there's so much dignity to love because it sees the value in every being. I remember being with my teacher and beloved friend Gosananda, the Gandhi figure of Cambodia, working in the Cambodian refugee camps, and he led for years these marches across the war zones of Cambodia. Um, and going through, you know, people would throw grenades and shoot at his, his group of people, um, as they tried to carry and bring refugees back to their villages. And he said, we can't go by train and we can't go by bus. We have to walk back so that the people, when they return to their villages, feel that it really is their place again. And the only way we can walk is to do the prayers of metta and loving kindness with every step. So there'd be sometimes somebody in the front with a drum, and then this whole group of people, hundreds and hundreds of people, would be chanting the text of loving-kindness meditation as they walk through the forest and these little trails, sometimes, you know, avoiding the landmines. Sometimes the soldiers would come out and bow and put their rifles on the ground, you know, because he was this great, beaming, beloved figure in Cambodia. From all sides, people would come out. Um, and one time... You know, a person that I knew who was walking right behind Magosananda and who was ringing this beautiful bell, a man came out of the forest and laid his rifle down um, and bowed and said, could I have that beautiful bell? And the fellow who was ringing the bell said, I'll trade you my bell for your rifle. And the man said, I can't do that. You know, my officer would shoot me if I gave up my gun. And... And so the fellow holding the bell thought for a minute. He said, I'll trade you my bell for all the rounds in your rifle. And so the soldier opened the magazine and took out all the bullets from his rifle and placed them in the hand of this fellow who was doing the peace march and exchange got the bell. When we enter a situation with love, and you all have it, you have your difficulties in your families, I know you do. You know, we just had Thanksgiving, right, or whatever. Christmas coming. And you have difficulties in work and finances and all of those things. When we enter with the quality of metta, of love and respect, it becomes the energy that transforms that difficulty. And the beautiful thing that the Buddha discovered is that this capacity can grow in us, that it can be trained. It is neuroplasticity writ large. That what we practice transforms our nervous system and our heart. It's there. It's the reality like gravity. We are connected. But we forget it. We get this shell based on our trauma and the things that have been done wrong to us and all the things that we fear and stuff. You know the shell, right? And our persona and all of that. It's just not who you are. I mean, and it gets a little tiresome to have the armor on as much as we do. To meditate, to practice metta and loving kindness is simply a way of kind of loosening the armor and remembering, oh yeah, we are really sisters and brothers, aunties and uncles, cousins. It's just how it is. And most cultures know that. They call, you know, Auntie Condoleezza, right? That's who she would be. She is, actually. She's a relative of yours, right? And uh, Uncle Barack. And, you know, Auntie Hillary and all the rest of it. I mean, it is. You know, Grandpa McCain. Grandpa... We all have grandparents. It's the way it goes, right? And as you practice it, it starts to grow. 
in you. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that I can live this, even in these difficulties, even in these conflicts. And in the end, what matters? When you, you know, when you get to the end of the game, the questions are pretty simple. Did I love well? It's not, you know, how much did I get? Because, you know, it's like that very, very rich man who died. And, uh, you know, all the talk was around what happened after he died. And somebody said, well, how much did he leave? And the person answering said, why, everything, of course. I mean, how much do you leave? You leave everything, <laughs> you know. So it's not about that. How, how well did I love? Did I love well? Maybe did I live fully? Did I bring myself to life moment by moment in some authentic way, which is connected with loving? Did I love well? Did I live fully? As a poem, I couldn't find it. I remember a couple of lines from it. It begins, In the evening you will be examined on love. And maybe it comes from a, an ancient prayer. No matter what course you signed up for, that's going to be the exam. You know, and it's the great blue book in the, of the sky. It's not, in the evening you will be examined on love in the evening of your life. And we can each sense this possibility of what we might long for or wish for. It's really to love and to be loved and to bring the gifts of our life. I mean, we're not happy if we can't bring the gifts of our life to this world. Um, and in some way to bring these gifts alive requires a kind of love. They're built on this love. Now in Buddhist psychology, this is simply seen as mental health. You know, all these things about mental health and all these things in Western psychology. To be able to love well, to love, to, be, to live in love, to live in a kind of authenticity and freedom is what is considered healthy. Now, it's one thing to talk about it in all these kind of sweet ways. I have stories I could read, but... um, We do know that the world is difficult. You know, we open the papers and there's what happened in Mumbai, in India, and what's happening still in Darfur, in the Congo, and we don't have to go far away. We can just go down the road to San Quentin and see the kind of racist poverty prisons that have two and a half million people in them, more people behind bars in these little cages than, you know, most of the other um, so-called modern countries in the world all put together. And it's crazy to see this in a kind of sorrow. And we can see how many human problems there are caused by greed and hatred and ignorance. The root of them, yes, we need to act politically, we need to act economically, but underneath, it's consciousness that has to be transformed. Or we continue to repeat them. We get a, you know, a, a revolution and the next government comes in and they put the old group into prison and they... They themselves get intoxicated with greed and hatred and it carries on. We've seen this. There has to be a transformation of consciousness. And the truth is that even with the great measure of sorrow in the world, there is a counterbalancing beauty of innumerable acts of goodness. And if you reflect even on the day that you go through, how many people stopped at the red light so you could go on the green? Say, well, that's in their self-interest, you could say, right? Isn't it? It's true. But it's very confusing if you look for a kind of pure motivation. Everything is a little bit mixed. You stop on the red light. Yes, because if you go through it, you'll get a ticket, probably. You might get in an accident, so it's not good for you. But you also do it because you sense yourself as part of this dance of life. Where we take turns. Because it's not just about me. It's about us. And there are countless, innumerable acts every time you stand in line and, you know, in a reasonably polite way. I know you can be reasonably polite on occasion. Um, You are engaged. Every garden that's planted, every seed that's planted, um, all the people who tend to our children when we can't tend to them, 
tend to our elders. The world is full of these acts. And I guess it's important to say it's not about perfection. I like to tell this story when I teach metta. Um, I was uh, leading a retreat, a 10-day retreat, at our East Coast Center some years ago, a long, long time ago, actually. And um, it was the last day of the retreat, and I was supposed to lead a meditation on loving-kindness, which we'll do in a little bit here. Um, and right before I was to come in... I was on the phone that morning with a woman that I was involved with at that time and we were having a really hard time and we had a big fight. And it wasn't pretty. (laughs) And then I could hear the bell ringing. It's time to go in for the meditation on loving kindness and I'm supposed to lead it, right? (laughs) So I go in and I'm... sitting up there and the room is full of all these eager people and um, I close my eyes you know and take a few breaths and I tell them to settle in their bodies and how loving kindness meditation is practiced and I said now think of someone you love a lot and wish them well you know may they be safe may they be happy or whatever the phrase is we'll see and I pause so that people can do it and then the whole argument rushes in. You know, she said this. I'm going to call her back. That's completely, you know. Okay, now think of someone else you love a lot, right? In my best metta loving kindness voice, you know. They're so, you know. And then I'm, I'm so pissed. I'm, you know, she did it. And, you know, I just get furious. Okay, now shift to yet another person you love. And what was amazing, the mind has no pride at all. It will do anything, Right. And it was sort of going back and forth like this, you know, soccer match or something inside. By the end of it, it was actually, it was funny. It was like, okay, look at that. Yeah, love him, hate her, right? Love him. <laughs> and, and I kind of calmed down by the end of it because I just saw that. It's just what it does. The point isn't that you don't have conflict. The point isn't that there isn't pain or loss and so forth. But the point is that there is something bigger that can hold it all, which is this great heart of a Buddha that is who you are. And to meditate isn't really a complicated thing. It's letting yourself, letting quieting the mind and opening the heart and saying, yes, here we are to this world. And then there comes this great power. In the Bhagavad Gita it says, if you want to see the brave, look to those who can return love for hatred. If you want to see the heroic, look to those who can forgive. I mean, that's real bravery. Because there are two great forces in this world. There are the force of those who are not afraid to kill. And they run a lot of parts of the world through the kind of threats of violence and killing. And the only thing that is a measure for it is those who aren't afraid to love, who will stand up for love, who will live with that capacity of love, no matter what. I mean, it's the saving grace of humanity, and it's in you. Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, there's a story of her, um, you know, working in the, I don't know, the Bowery in New York City, where is one of the, her Catholic worker houses, and going down the street, and there was this beggar who'd, who was there who'd lost part of their face to cancer and was there asking, you know, for some money for food to eat and she was with people. And she said, I didn't have money, although I told the old woman that she could come, you know, and we would feed her. She said, then I didn't know what else to do, so I just bent over and I gave her a big kiss. She said, and that's, that was my answer to what she was asking for. Yes, she needed food. But probably more than anything else, that's what she needed. Somebody to see her and love her anyway. Rumi says, love is like a millstone. True love, it takes everything into itself and, and it, you know, grinds it until it becomes the, the wheat or the, you know, the grain turns into something that we can bake something beautiful with. It doesn't matter. It takes everything into itself and turns it into something that's nourishing to us.
couple more little stories and then we'll do our practice. If we have all the powers and the faith to move mountains, but not love, we are as clanging cymbals, says St. Paul. No matter what you have, it's, it's diminished without love and it comes alive when it's present. Sylvia tells this story. She was in New York and a, and a student that she'd been teaching in New York City came up and said that he'd been mugged recently. He was walking on a side street somewhere um, down in Soho or wherever in the lower part of Manhattan. And this kind of crazed looking guy with disheveled, you know, dirty blonde hair and kind of a glazed look like he was high on something came up and pulled out a gun and said, give me all your money. And this guy, of course, reached for his wallet, took out all his money. And then the guy with the gun said, I'm going to shoot you. And he said, no, wait a second, you know, you you need my credit cards too. And he gave them over. He said, I'm I'm going to shoot you. He said, well, I've got a really good watch, you know, and gave him that, you know. And then the guy said, you know, I've got to shoot you, man. And he looked at him and he said, he said, you know, um, you don't have to shoot me. You did really good. You got $700. You know, you got a really fancy watch. You got all this stuff. You did really good. You don't have to shoot me. And he said, it sort of stopped him in his tracks. I did good. You know, like nobody had said that to him in a really long time. You did really good. Go back, tell your friends how good you did. It's okay. You did really good. You got all this. And the man lowered his gun and walked away and took the money and the credit cards and the watch and so forth. And Sylvia said, and the person who was being mugged was, you know, of course, tremendously alarmed and yet somehow also tremendously relieved. Um, I'm not saying that that's, you know, the practice that you do each time or whatever, or that you don't, you know, you don't run when it's time to run. You do, I mean, all those things are important to know. Um, It's like that little book of children's letters to God where uh, um, in this kind of, second grade handwriting it's like dear god um maybe cain and abel would not fight so much um if they each had their own room it works with me and my brother you know love matt or something like that so there's a pragmatic thing too where you know you don't walk in the wrong places at night and you get out of there if you can and so forth but there's something else you know in the end what matters and how do we bring it especially when things are difficult when you are in conflict which you are regularly, um, or when you're in conflict with yourself. When our second son, Jasper, was born, he was labeled a child with Down's syndrome. This is as inaccurate as it could be. In Jasper's case, it should be called Up's syndrome. When he first wakes up, he rushes into his parents' bedroom and leaps on us with an enthusiastic, happy-to-you morning. He meets the entire world with his heart outstretched and he hugs everyone he can. It's his favorite way of being. They used to call his state retarded. It makes me wonder. Other parents of similar children have warned us to curb his hugging behavior or he will be the target of molesters. But this is Jasper's gift. How can we deny it? The other day we were walking down the street and he got out in front of us. He's almost 12 but very small. This angry-looking tough guy with tattoos and piercings comes toward us, and I go, "Uh uh-oh, but it's too late to reach Jasper. And then I see Jasper look up, smile, and throw a big hug around this guy's legs and shout, Hi there! And the tough guy paused and tousled Jasper's hair, and I could see this shy, young boy smile come over the face with all the piercings. Jasper had done his magic again. True love, says Meher Baba, is not for the faint-hearted. It really manifests when things are difficult. Um, But it goes on gathering power and transforming everything that it touches. So in the Buddhist tradition, it's said that long ago, um, the Buddha had a group of monks and nuns who had gone off to meditate in the wilds of the forest and in caves 
um, come running back to him after a few days and say it was frightening out there. There were animals, wild animals and ghosts and spirits in the caves and all kinds of things, and they needed some kind of protection if they were to go out and meditate in the forest. And he said, I will give you the great protection. And it was at that point that was the first formal teaching of the practice of loving-kindness. He said, and if you can enter the forest with your heart truly full of loving-kindness, then no matter what happens, you'll be protected. And I don't think it means that, you know, sometimes bad things might not happen, because they do. Praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain are the weavings of our human condition. It's just the way life is, birth and death and hot and cold. Um, so you will have loss and pain and, and blame. Anybody not have that? You know, and so forth. But to have the quality of a loving heart transforms all that like nothing else can. Now sometimes the practice of metta begins with forgiveness and that's a whole separate practice. We might do just a couple minutes of it tonight. Um, but that's a whole separate teaching I'd like to do. But forgiveness is basically the letting go in the heart before you begin your loving kindness. Letting go of the things that you hold from the past because the past is done. And they say forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. Right? <laughs> it's done. It's over. You can't change it. Right? And it doesn't mean that you condone what happened. You may say, never again, I'll put my self, I will do everything in my power to prevent this suffering from happening again. It doesn't condone it. And it, you know, it doesn't paper it over, oh, everything's nicey-nice. You may never talk to that person again or, you know, do whatever you need to protect yourself and others. But inwardly, it's simply not carrying hatred. And it's not even for their sake. I mean, they could be on vacation in Hawaii right now, right? And you're sitting here, I hate them, I'm never afraid of them. Who's suffering? Right? It's really for your own sake. It's like the story I always tell of the two ex-prisoners of war, one who turns to the other, have you forgiven your captors yet? second one says, no, never. And the first one says, well then, they still have you in prison, don't they? And whether it's the Bosnians and the Serbs and the Croats or the Palestinians and the Israelis or the Hutus and the Tutsis or... Um, the Hatfields and the McCoys or, you know, worldwide, until somebody says it stops here. Yes, there have been generations of betrayal and suffering that we've all participated in in some way or other. I will not pass it on. I will not pass it on to my children. I will not pass it on to others. I will bear the suffering with with a loving heart and I will release the hatred so that I will not continue this cycle. As the Buddha says, he says, look how he abused me, beat me, threw me down, robbed me. Continue to think these thoughts and perpetuate hatred. Look how he abused me, beat me, threw me down, robbed me. Abandon these thoughts, even in this time, and live in love. That's a really tall order. In this world, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And so it's a practice. So we'll do it, and it's a practice that you do through some planting of seeds, the reciting of intentions in the heart. And sometimes you feel it, and you feel loving. And sometimes you do it, and you feel very neutral. I don't feel anything. I feel sort of like, well, where's the nice, warm feeling? Sometimes it brings up its opposite. You do it and you realize, I hate that person. You know, I just can't stand them and I'm never going to love them. You know, and not only that, I don't like that one either. And it just, you know, and your rage and your grief and all that comes. And it's supposed to. It becomes the mirror of the heart. It's a kind of purification to see all the ways that we're afraid to love because we've been hurt so much. And then you keep doing it and finally you realize, well, you know, I hate them, but it's so hard to keep my heart this close. All right, I'll love you a little bit just so I can get through this metta, right, or something. And it starts to soften and change you. So um, let yourself sit comfortably for this next 10, 15 minutes. 
I remember going out to to look at. Um, sometimes <clears throat> I was traveling another part of the Bay Area, and there was an interesting house with a sign for sale on it. And I went in um, an open house, um, signed for an open house. I went with a friend, and it was a cool house. And I just wanted to kind of look around and so forth. And um, it felt really good. And the and the realtor in there recognized me. I don't know, you know, Jack, is that you? I've come out to Spirit Rock. I said, so how's the realty business? She said, really good. And it wasn't one of those great uptimes either. I said, why is that? You know, I'm, I'm glad you're doing, you, you, must, you look like you enjoy doing it. She said, you know, these open houses are great because they're my metta practice. I sit here and I just do metta for everybody who comes in, and whether they buy it or not. Um, and it makes my day. And um, everybody else seemed to be having a good time. So, all right, so lay your eyes close. And first take a few nice, deeper breaths so you can settle in your body. And bring your attention to the area of your heart. as Almost as if you could breathe in and out of the heart. And first, just a a couple of minutes of the forgiveness practice. In the simplest way, often we do it with different directions, forgiveness for yourself, forgiveness for others that you may have hurt or ways they've hurt you. Because we've all been betrayed at some time, just as we've all caused harm to others. But to keep it really simple, as you sit quietly and feel in the present, in your heart. Notice if there's something this evening that asks for your forgiveness, where you need to forgive yourself. Or be forgiven by someone else. Or forgive them. And as you breathe gently... Let yourself sense into the heart of forgiveness that could say, I forgive myself for all the foolish things out of pain and confusion and hurt and anger that you may have done or that others may have done to you. I forgive myself or I forgive you. Out of all the pain and confusion in this moment, Offer yourself or others forgiveness. And sometimes it comes naturally. Sometimes you can't forgive so easily. You can't paper it over. The pain or the hurt or betrayal is there. And it just shows you how much compassion you need for your own suffering and the suffering of others. Just to hold whatever is true with a compassionate and kind heart. Whatever it is. The great heart of a Buddha. And then take a deep breath or two. And with a little of this practice of forgiveness, we begin the simple phrases of loving kindness. And usually you begin with yourself, even though some people find this hard, so hard to love ourselves. Because the the Buddha says you can search the whole tenfold universe and not find a single being more worthy of love 
than the one seated right here. If you can't love yourself, then the things you don't love in yourself, you won't accept in others either. That's a radical act to love your humanity. So breathing in and out, here are the ancient phrases, and you can change them any way you need to make them fit your intentions. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be safe from all dangers. You know, and feel how if you step off the curb and a car is coming quickly down the street, how you automatically protect yourself. You jump back out of the street. How much you love your life. May I be safe from all dangers. May I be well in body and mind. And may I be truly happy, a deep happiness. Sometimes if it's difficult to do metta for yourself, you can picture yourself as a child innocent and deserving of love, not having to earn it, little boy or little girl you were. Or you can take your hand and put your hand on your heart. May I be filled with loving kindness in this whole human life. And may I be safe from all dangers And may I be well, healed, well in body and mind. And may I be truly happy, the deepest happiness, contentment, love, inner freedom, whatever that happiness would be. Now picture someone you love a lot and extend the metta, loving kindness to them. Think of them, remember them. May you be filled with loving kindness. And may you, loved one, may you be safe from all dangers. And may you be well in body and mind. May you be truly happy. And feel how natural it is to wish well for someone you love. Now picture someone else, a friend, some other being, a benefactor who's cared for you. Bring them into the heart, let it open further. May you too be filled with loving kindness. Dear friend, may you be safe from all dangers. May you be well in body and mind. 
May you be truly happy. And if we had the time to explore this practice, we would do other loved ones and benefactors and more friends and neutral people, people you see around that aren't so connected in your life. And then you'd go on to difficult people, even enemies, wishing them well, wishing that they awaken and become free. And animals and beings of every kind. Even now as you sit, you can let the heart of loving kindness open and feel all the people seated in this room tonight, hundreds of people sitting around you, each with their own families and stories and lives and joys and sorrows. And each a Buddha. And wish them well, let it spread out from you. May you all be filled with loving kindness, all those around. Feel it. May you all be safe from every danger. May you be well in body and mind. May you all be truly happy and free. And let the feeling of loving-kindness spread from this room in every direction across the land and the whole Bay Area to all of the humans and the fish in the rivers and the bay and the birds in the air, the animals of the forest, and beings who are young and old, near and far, those who are happy and those who are struggling. And let the well-wishing extend from your heart to the whole of the world and beyond. May all beings be held in great loving kindness. And may all beings be safe from danger, May all beings be well. And may all beings be free. And feel this well-wishing as you come back to the breath of your own heart and how you can open to and trust your own great heart of loving-kindness, the great heart of a Buddha in you to awaken and bless your life and all that you touch. So this is the beginning of loving-kindness practice. Many of you have done this over months or years, but some may be new to it. There's all kinds of good books and teachings, Sharon Salzberg's book on loving-kindness, or uh, I've got several books, The Art of Forgiveness and Loving-Kindness, and various books I've written, Stephen Levine, John Kabat-Zinn, and so forth. So there's wonderful support if you want to undertake the practice. It's great to do it in traffic jams. It's good in line in the supermarket. You know, it works very well. It's nice when you go to a family gathering. You don't have to let people know. You don't weird about it at all. You can, you know, it's very quiet and so forth. But you can just sit there. I like, I mean, I do it when you can use it on the bar. When you go on an airplane, I do meta for all the people sitting around me for a few minutes 
you know, instead of just reading my magazine or something. And I start to connect with all these people. I wish everybody well a little bit, you know. Not strange, you know, kind of... You, you know, you, you know what I mean. You're weird anyway, but you don't have to kind of play it up. And, and after a while, you start to feel like they're your people, which they are, actually. They are your people. So just two more brief things and we'll go out. Would you turn towards somebody near you and, and just give them the name of somebody who's not a family member that you love. Just tell them somebody that you love. Give them the name of somebody just for the fun of it. Pick somebody. Tell them who it is. And, and who they are. It could be a friend or, you know. <laughs> Let them tell you. Kind of fun to hear. See? It's not that hard. The room filled up with all these love relationships. It's great. Um, All right. So I'll be gone the next couple of weeks. Next week is uh, Larry Yang is teaching. I forget who's the following Monday. And then I come back. Does somebody know? Nina Nina Wise. Wonderful. Um, And then I come back on the 22nd or something like that. And usually we do a slideshow, kind of a mystery slideshow and a potluck community uh, thing. This year I want to show a film called The Buddha's Lost Children. 